Welcome to the Social Behavioral Coffee Hour, the Center for Social and Behavioral Science podcast series at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Our goal is to provide a platform for guests to discuss and explore themselves, their disciplines, and the broader context in which they research, work, and live. This includes the good and the bad, and the beautiful and the messy. We aim to discuss human nature and how to build a better world using behavioral science. And if we can, we'd like to have a little fun along the way. The following is a conversation with Ruby Mendenhall, professor of African-American studies at the University of Illinois. Ruby and I talk about how gun violence in our environment changes us in unexpected ways, both psychologically and biologically. We also talk about current interventions and initiatives to reduce gun violence, and importantly, how families that have lost loved ones find ways to heal from impossible wounds. Talking about gun violence is hard, but in our conversation, Ruby and I look to find hope. Ruby Mendenhall, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And Ruby, you do a lot of research here at the university on the topic of gun violence. And I'm kind of curious, how does someone get interested in studying gun violence? And what was your history kind of leading up to this point? Yeah, so I'll, t- I'll take you all the way kind of back to the beginning. And 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 actually, as I tell my story, it kind of helps me um, kind of put things into place. Um, so great, my great. undergrad degree is in occupational therapy. And so I worked at um, then Cook County Hospital, now John Stroger in the pediatric occupational therapy department, which I loved. I think that was the best job that I ever had. And um, so I also work with uh, mothers who um, had children who came into the hospital who were failing to thrive, so not growing as they should for their age. And then um, as being a member of the protective service team, right, we would kind of look at the mothers, uh, mostly Black and Latinx mothers, and, um, you know, kind of put the question forth in so many words, like, do you know how to take care of the baby? Do we need to take the baby? And you would hear the uh, mothers say that they don't have enough money to feed the baby. They're watering the formula down, and that's why the baby isn't growing. And so after I heard that um, story several times, it hit me that, okay, this is not about whether the moms know how to take care of their kids, whether they um, love their children, right? This is about will society provide them with resources to feed their children? And so um, I then became interested in public policy. So I went to the University of of Chicago, um, the Harris School of Public Policy, and studied um, policy. After that, I graduated and worked at the Ounce Prevention Fund, um, which also has a new name, and I can't remember the new name of it. Um, and I was part of their kids' public education and policy project. And um, we, you know, did work. We worked with legislators around lobbying. Um, we also um, helped with um, kind of thinking about what resources were needed. So we worked around um, economic development. Again, kind of going back to my, um, you know, as a society where we help people feed their children. And then while I was doing that, um, early Head Start came along, which is Head Start for zero to three-year-olds. And that's mostly what I work with. And so I helped them to write the grant. And when they got the grant, it was going to be in Robert Taylor. Um, public housing, which has been torn down since then. And I remember asking, like, can I go and work on the grant and Robert Taylor? 
And many of them was like, well, why would you want to leave downtown to go work in Robert Taylor? Like, who does that? And I wanted to do it because I wanted to understand um, the mother's lives. And as they were trying to raise their children, what they were experiencing. And I was at, you know, a lot of the policy tables and it was mostly white males around those tables who were committed. But I often looked and I was like, well, why aren't the mothers who can't feed their children? Why aren't they around this policy table? So I um, worked in Robert Taylor Homes for about two years and, um, you know, got a lot of answers to a lot of the things, um, you know, in terms of gun violence, poverty, um, you know, teen mothers. I also work with teen moms um, that I love um, working with and um and so I did that. Then I went back to school, um, got my PhD from Northwestern in human development and social policy. And then I was looking again at economic development, right? Like um, looked at the Gautreaux housing program, right? The voucher program, as many people know it. And then how, when mothers moved to those different neighborhoods, how did their economic outcomes improve? Did they work more? Did they make more money? Did they spend less time on welfare? And again, addressing the question I had about being able to feature children. But um, as time went on, right, I eventually came here in 2006. And then I started hearing about um, gun violence. Like there, were, there was gun violence in Robert Taylor, but I remember that they, it was, um, they would often say, okay, like at 315, right, you know, it's, it's about to start shooting. It's going to be a war. Get your kids in the house. And, um, you know, kind of structured like that. And people would have a sense of um, when things were happening. And then, you know, after a while, I started hearing a lot about gun violence here and young people um, being shot and sometimes doing the shooting. And um, I just remember thinking like, wow, how do mothers manage um, with knowing that their children can be shot? And um, how, how do you manage that? And so that was kind of the, in the long story short, <laughs> that was kind of the introduction to um, looking at um, gun violence, um, looking at the cost, the horrific high cost of it on so many levels. See, and it sounds like you've been in the, the kind of Chicagoland slash, you know, central Illinois area for a while. Um, from your vantage point, does gun violence in our particular community in the Illinois area look different from in other parts of the country, you think? And, and in what ways? Yeah, good question. I don't. Hmm. I haven't really thought about the difference in how it looked, right? I think some of the causes are similar with um, the historic oppression, the lack of resources and jobs and communities, lack of access to higher education, right? All of those things that have played out because that's 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 who we are as, as a country, right? That's built that systemic oppression of individuals based on race, gender is part of who this country is. Um, so I can't, I mean, it may vary based on um, the different, right resources that, that are available, different jobs. So I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. What do you think are the characteristics of, of gun violence, though, in, in our particular area? And I, I ask this because sometimes when I travel, you know, I'll tell people that, you know, I'm living in Chicago and they'll be like, oh, what's Chicago like? Is it really as, 
as dangerous as it sounds like. And it always, you know, when I'm traveling, it makes me feel like there probably are features of, of gun violence to our community or to our Illinois community more broadly that do make it kind of unique. Um, and I kind of describe to them my very basic understanding of it. Um, but I'm wondering for someone who's maybe not living in the area uh, or who hasn't really thought about this that much, like what do you see as being kind of the unique features of the gun violence situation in Illinois? Well, so that's interesting because my experience is a little different from yours, right? When I talk to um, other um, black and brown individuals, um, when I go across the country or, you know, colleagues that I know, they talk about having similar issues around um, gun violence, similar issues Mm. around, um, you know, safety, similar issues around the cost of oppression. So, um, right, they talk about it um, being St. Louis, you know, Los Angeles, um, different places. So, right, so in terms of um, people of color, I don't know, right, that it, it's, oh, it's here, but it's not over there, right? right. And, and again, right. I think that speaks to the systemic oppression and how it plays out in black and brown communities and often um, tell people that, you know, this country, um, black and whites and, you know, other groups to different degrees, but uh, for the most part, we live in very different worlds, right? Our realities, our experiences are very different. Yeah. I want to actually talk a little bit about that very first internship that you mentioned and and how so much of your interest um you know in, in helping people seems like it kind of came from that um you actually casually mentioned that it was you know one of the best jobs you've ever had um and i want i was wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about you know that experience and how it changed you and i'm also kind of curious about the like so i did my um phd in psychology so i kind of understand a little bit more this idea of failure to thrive yeah. but i'm wondering if you could like unpack that a little bit more and tell us like what's in that yeah, so the so the um, Cook County, you know, then Cook County Hospital, um, Children's Hospital, it was it really was a great experience. I think one because I love um, working with children. I didn't have children at the time, right? I have two boys now, mm-hmm. and um, so that was like just joyful, right? Kids are just really joyful. And then also, I had the opportunity to work in the neonatal intensive care unit, right? So I did. Um, developmental assessments, um, and then also trained physicians to do developmental assessments of children. So, right, just kind of looking to see if children are developing um, as they should be, quote unquote, according to their age, or um, if there were some delays, and then what can you do about the delay? So, um, but within the neonatal intensive care unit, right, it was a little more intense because the babies were, right, uh, premature, they were fragile, and we would do um, um, kind of the assessments just trying to make sure their reflexes were, um, you know, on target. And and again, that was, that was also just really beautiful to work with the little babies. And then I think what I also really liked about my job and I only learned this, how, how to do what I'm, the story I'm about to tell you, I only learned how to do this, I think probably after years of experience, unfortunately. But um, when I would work with um, two things, when I would work with children, do assessments, and when they were delayed 
for their age, um, quote unquote, delayed, right? And when you say delayed, do you mean sort of like in developmentally terms of delayed, right? So maybe they're not walking um, when they should, or not talking, or processing information. And so, you know, right, we would do the developmental um, assessment, and then I would just say, so according to the assessment, right, your child has mild delays, moderate, severe, and just kind of do it, you know, by the book, right? But then I started to really see and take in the response of parents when you talked about like moderate and severe delays. And so I then learned um, to, and maybe they covered in school. I don't want to say they didn't cover it in school, but then I learned to just kind of, you know, use different words and to also then put some, you know, this is what we're seeing now but um, this isn't the whole story, right? So learn how to um, just kind of cushion um, more. And then the other thing that I learned how to do was, um, and again, I'm not saying they didn't cover it in school, but to say that I'm, right? Cause you know, they, the therapist, they see you as an expert. And, and I learned to say, you know, so I'm an expert in a lot of children, right? Like, you know, kind of what the research says and what people looked at across the board, but you're the expert with your child, right? You mm. know what works with your child. When I give you these um, exercises and things, you're going home to really bring them in and you know how they respond and don't respond. And so I really kind of um, learn how to do this partnership with the parents and, and I'm not the expert. And so even, even now um, in my work, I really try to um, give space, deference, um, you know, a love, I would even say, for the knowledge that people already have. And I know in the academy, in this um, elite space, as I call it, we're often taught, socialized to think and to believe that we're the beginning and ending of the knowledge, and that's not the case. And so that's something that I really... Um, try to look and hear and to um, give give space again for community knowledge knowledge that people already have so that that's why I love the being around being around the kids um the partnership and um I love the creativity with occupational therapy right because if people mm. couldn't uh, perform their activities of daily living or if something was a limitation you know, as therapists, you say and you think and you create things to get around that limitation. So I think that's also kind of, um, you know, with the makeathon and other things and, and some of like people often say, oh, you're very creative. And I think part of it is um, maybe how I came out. My, my dad was a, mil a builder, a maker. And I think part of it was um, just kind of looking at um, people with challenges who were making it work, right? Who were getting things done that they needed to get done with those physical and mental challenges. Yeah. I also love the way that you say, you know, you try to respect um, the knowledge that that we have. You know, you find the love and the knowledge that we have, we being the, the community itself. Um, do you have any really poignant examples that show the difference between the knowledge that can be contained within communities and the knowledge that's sort of generated from universities and how they can differ and, and be more or less accurate. Yeah, and, and I don't know if accurate accurate is the word, I think it's um, maybe what's needed, right? Mm. 
Um, so I'll, I'll give one, and this is um, with um, undergrads. Um, when I when I was doing research right after we interviewed, and then I'll give one a community example. Um, so we were um, working with Jean Robinson at the Institute for Genomic Biology, Brent Roberts in Psychology, um, Sandra Rodriguez-Zas in um, Animal Studies, and we did the research um, on Black mothers' resiliency in Chicago. And um, so we, we interviewed me and the wonderful team that I had, um, almost about 100 mothers. And so, right, you have to take the interviews and you have to code them and break them down into small pieces. And so I had this big lab of wonderful, amazing um, undergrad and graduate students who helped to do that. And so we would code the data and decide what is it about, right? Is this about neighborhood trauma? Is this about resiliency? Is this about relationships? Is this about, you know, whatever we were talking about? And there were times when the undergraduates would see things in the data. And, and I hit the, you know, we were working on the code book. And I'm like, mm, I didn't see that. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, and then we have discussion and I still wouldn't be quite convinced. And then, but they wouldn't let it go. <laughs> they were like, this is here, you know, it's this and think about it. And then I was like, oh, right. So they continued and then I did see it. And so it was, it was really beautiful because. And I tell people, especially when they do qualitative data, that it's not so much right or wrong, it's based on your lived experiences. Right. And so um, that was one example of having people um, younger, right, younger people who saw something different in the data that um, really helped me to see what they saw, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like I, I just wouldn't have picked it up. And in some ways, I even resisted what they were trying to tell me. And then um, once, you know, again, they persisted and I said, okay, let me, let me look, let me, you know, step back. And it was something, again, beautiful there. And so my um, community example is um, from the Carl Illinois College of Medicine, right? When we were doing with Marty Burke and um, Lisa Goodpastor, Irfan um, Ahmad, when we were doing the um, Carl Illinois Health Makeathons and we opened it up to anybody in the community, right? Could submit an idea around health and wellness, including children who had to get the um, approval of their parents. And so I encourage one of our Nobel scholars, right? We were doing the STEM Illinois Nobel project out of the chancellor's office. Curse, um, actually all of them to apply. And one of them, Malik Muhammad and his dad applied to play, um, classical violin music or classical music um, after gun violence as a way to create community healing. Hmm. And um, and he was, I think he was in eighth grade maybe at the time. So he actually won. And, um, you know, it had to shift some due to COVID, but they did ended up, end up playing at Carl. They played in community centers and they played um, other places. And um, kind of during the process, I was, you know, giving my um, input and my feedback. And but but he was firm, right? He was like, you know, this is this is what I would like. I want to say division, but he didn't use those words. Um, and and they won, right? So I think it was amazing. So even now, um, he is helping me to create a song for a documentary that I'm doing. Um, about mothers who lost children to gun violence. And Lisa Butler is um, the director of it. And um, then he also applied to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Youth Composers 
and he was accepted. So the song um, they are going to perform, and I actually have the um, the date. I don't um, maybe we could put it at the end of it. People are interested. Yeah, please. I'd be happy so, to provide a link to that if you would. Yeah, like to send it to yeah. You. So um, so that's a that's another one when um, they came up with this idea, and and they did alter it some due to our um, feedback. But for the most part, the idea came from him. And um, even now also with our, so having, again, trying to give space to community members um, also led to the community health worker program where I'm now working with um, high school students and young adults to train them to be community health workers. And part of what I'm really excited about is that they can be in places that we aren't. Like I said before, often um, black and white individuals live in very different worlds. And that also applies across the generations, right? Like the, you know, the high school students. Um, and I can only say that I hear that they have a whole lot of challenges, right? And right. we had some, I'll speak for myself, I had some, but the, the level that I'm hearing, but again, I'm hearing it. I'm not in their worlds, in those right. conversations, in those decisions that are being made, right? And so yeah. um, that's part of it to um, give them tools that support what they already do, what they already know. And that's you, another example of it. Yeah. What do you think are some of the big generational differences? I think, um, from again, from what I'm hearing, right, anxiety seems to be more um, of an issue. I think gun violence, certainly when I was growing up, um, or uh, see, I can't even say that, right? Because it depends on, you know, shelter and all that. But I just know as a child, right, I wasn't dealing with gun violence. Um, mm -hmm. I was not going to the funerals of my children. I was not like kind of um, shot or injured or didn't know anyone. So, um, you know, those are some real heavy things that they're dealing with. And many times they aren't sure where to um, where to go for support around that. And a lot of times, and so for this, I'll say in terms of generationals, when we did talk to the moms about gun violence, they talked about as children that they saw gun violence, they saw people being shot, but they didn't tell their parents. Hmm. So um, even with the control, I'm sorry, not the control women, but the women in Chicago that I was interviewing, you know, they were adults and had children, but they talked about their childhood and that they also had exposure to gun violence and things like that. And um, a lot of times their parents didn't know. So, um, mm -hmm. and then we're, ooh, right? Our children have experienced a global pandemic, right? That turned mm -hmm. their lives upside down. Many of them, especially with the higher levels of death among communities of color, right? Many of the elders have been taken out in a minute almost. Um, and so that's another whole level of grief and loss that they have to deal with. And, um, and even the support. So for instance, I lost my um, uncle that I like loved. He was, he was my father's brother. He was the last one from the family of that generation. And when he was hospitalized, I couldn't go and visit him. Right. And then when they hit the funerals, one of the first ones when they started doing them on Zoom and, you know, it was it was something. So even me, I still have some grief and unprocessed 
um, feelings about that because I wasn't necessarily able to do the rituals that we do that tend to help with that. So I think yeah. that's another thing that our young people um, are dealing with. The adults, of course, like I just said, my story, the adults are dealing with it. But I tend to think we probably have more resources um, and the young people um, with less generally with less resources to process it, to talk about it, to um, even kind of, you know, refer to some some theories and other things about what may be going on. So, yeah. 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 So, Ruby, you've done a lot of research um, looking at the impact of gun violence and, and then racial trauma in general. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us what some of your your key findings are from that work, if there are a few things you'd like to highlight, um, maybe things that people aren't necessarily aware of even. I think people are probably aware of this, but I just really want to highlight. Well, first of all, okay, so two. One is um, even before COVID-19, I was saying to people and, you know, based on talking to the women, that there's a lot of grief and loss that is not, um, that often isn't giving the space to be processed and to heal from. And um, so that's the whole thing. When I um, created the wellness center and Lincoln Square Mall, right? And um, had community meetings and was like, what would you like to see in this space? What color would you like the walls? And um, we did a soft opening and um, just before we could really make it, you know, um, wonderful, engaging, active space, COVID hit, right? So mm. we shut it down. Mm. And um, Will Patterson is doing lots of things with his um, race cars. And then we just had a group recently for mothers who um, lost adult children to gun violence. So um, mm. so I would say just the level of grief, grief and loss. And that's from gun violence, but it's also from um, excess death, right? So individuals who die early due to social determinants of health related to oppression, racism, um, all of that. So that's one. And then the second one I think is um, the need for all of the systems to understand what trauma looks like, um, right? Like I always say, if you when you have kids throwing over tables and you know um, in the faces of adults, and, you know, Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry wrote a book on it, right? Like, instead of saying, what's wrong with you, right? Why can't you sit down? Let's call the police. Let's suspend them. Let's send them to jail. Let's lock them up. Let's do all of this. Instead of saying that, saying, what happened, right? Like, why are mm -hmm. you flipping over tables? And I think um, as a society in general, as states, um, as um, systems, right? Healthcare systems, educational systems, we need to understand what the symptoms of trauma look like and kids flipping over tables, right? Or if they're just very still and, and aren't really engaging much, um, that could also be a sign of trauma. Mm. And so I would say those two things I think are really critical. And of course, um, um, poverty, right? Racism, ending racism and poverty. Um, the women talked a lot about having headaches, backaches, stomach aches, hair falling out, like all of those things on the body and mind are under extreme stress. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so, so all of those, right? Grief, loss, um, being able to process that, being able to understand trauma and not to uh, further traumatize children and adults. 
um, based on their actions, but to understand and to give them spaces to heal. And then um, equality, right, in, in this society and for um, us to figure out how to move towards that. And the MacArthur, um, you know, the Community Health Worker Project is funded by the MacArthur Foundation. And the title of the project is um, Centering Youth Health and Wellness, colon, um, designing a third reconstruction and Chicago Renaissance, right? And I, I spent a lot of time looking at that title once I typed it out, right? And I was like, you know, are you are you going to put that title <laughs> in there for real and submit it, right? It, it's so bold, it's so audacious. Um, and then I was like, yes, because that's what we need, right? We need to transform this society towards equality, and a lot of the health, a lot of the violence, a lot of the other issues we're struggling with and spending a lot of money trying to address um, will be addressed. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about um, grief and loss and um, trying to overcome trauma. And I don't want to focus too much on the response part of it, because there's so much, I think, to be said as well about the prevention component. But it does also strike one listening to this that you've had to or you've had the opportunity, I'd say, to talk with people who have endured some of the most you know, heart-wrenching things um, that any human could endure. And I'm wondering, do you have lessons um, that we can derive from those conversations about how do you overcome grief and how do you overcome loss? And, and I'm just wondering like, if there's things that you've picked up um, from your conversations and your research um, about how individuals uh, and communities kind of come together to overcome things that you think would be so impossible to overcome. Yeah, well, um, I'll speak about my research, but also part of it goes to the Black tradition and Black culture, right? So where we mm. talk about making a way out of no way and um, all of this. So, um, and now the research is also showing um, community, right? Having a sense of community is very, very healing, very protective. Mm. Um, I'm working with um, a group of faculty and community members, right? Um, community healing and resistance through storytelling, right? So in the Black tradition and churches and other places, right? We tell stories of um, life was like this, life was hard, and then something happened, right? Um, intervention from God or some other things, and now um, life is better, right? There was no way I should have survived this. And then intervention, something happened, and now I'm here talking to you, right? So kind of um, community, um, being able to tell your stories, to get that support. I'm also working with the um, Emotional Emancipation Circle started by um, Cheryl Grills and Enola Aird. And one of the um, statements that they make is, um, we are each other's medicine. And I think we are so, each other's medicine. Right, that is so powerful that um, being in community and again around people who see you, right, feel you, saw you, Bona, as we talk about, um, that that's healing, that strengthens you. Um, and then also neuroscience is kind of talking about that as well, right? Like we can sense other people and um, it's, it can be healing or it cannot be, right? We've been in places where others' energy has not been healing. Um, so, I, so I think that, right, the importance of having people have spaces. And I'll say that, you know, I'm doing a lot of work 
And what Chicago, do you think, if, if I can, if I can ask you a question to elaborate on something you just said, um, I think that's really powerful. The idea that we are each other's medicine. Yeah. You also mentioned that there are certain times when just being around other people isn't sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the kinds of rituals or practices you mentioned storytelling? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering if you could tell us like, and I, cause I think when people hear this, they, they kind of will intuitively say, oh yes, I understand community is important. I understand community is important, but I think you're also hinting at something that's much more than just being physically around people. There's something about the ways in which people are connecting, sharing information, maybe, um, unpacking certain things that they hadn't unpacked um, previously. I don't know what it is to be honest, mm-hmm. but what makes for a community that that does in fact allow people to overcome their grief versus one that doesn't, you think? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just say some of the things based on my experience, right? So it's not the um, totality of it, but um, yeah. again, the storytelling, right? The sharing your experiences, and then also getting um, support, emotional support, right? That people, when you talk, um, they feel your pain, right? They um, support you, right? They give you hope, which which I'm learning is a really kind of big thing to have. Even myself, at some points, I was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, this country, is, is it changing? Can you change it? So mm-hmm. I think um, being around other people when you may not, be as hopeful. Um, they provide hope. Um, and I think too, and and the mothers told me this as well, like um, the, it's good to have spaces where you can tell people some of the things that are happening and, and without judgment, right? They um, without talk judgment. a lot about, yeah, without judgment. In fact, one of the mothers, when we were doing the um, interview, she waited Till, uh, till I was finishing up some interviews. And she said, you know, I just wanted to say thank you for coming and, you know, for asking what we needed. And um, she said, you know, the little things matter and people don't understand that. And at the time, I don't I don't think I understood it as much. You know, I, I've done lots of interviews before and people do say it feels good to be able to kind of share your experiences and someone who's an empathetic listener and, you know, nodding when you nod and all of that. But I, um, and, and when I did that, when I was coming in, like, okay, what policies do we need to change? Let's think systemic change. And when she said that, it it made me kind of slow down. And she said, you know, the little things matter. People don't understand that. And so I took it as both that um, it's, you know, the system needs to be changed, but also when you come and you ask, oh, how are you doing? How are you managing in this condition? You should not be in this condition, right? Segregated right. housing without resources. And it's nothing wrong with all Black neighborhoods or anything like that, but without resources to find employment, to um, go to different schools, to get the best education. Um, so I, I felt like she was saying, you know, recognizing our humanity. Mm-hmm. And so even whatever I do, I always still think about the big picture of the policy change, but then also... Um, what can you do on the ground um, at the moment that can offer that sense of relief? So I think, again, the storytelling, the um, the being there for individuals, providing, sharing resources back and forth, which um, we were doing with this group. And again, like I said, a space where, and this is what we're trying to create with the wellness um, center and wellness stores. 
a place where you can, you don't have to raise your hand and say, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling really angry. I want to flip over tables. I want to knock somebody out. I want to do all of this. But the space is such a um, healing space, right? It, it's calm. It's beautiful. It has, um, we had the, the fountain going. We had somebody come in to do massages. Like we try to bring in a lot of healing modalities, right? Mm. To um, help to soothe some of the pain, to help soothe some of the grief. And we shared back and forth, right? We didn't come in with that. How do I know? Like I have not been in that experience. I, you know, I've lost people. I have not lost a child, right? So, so that's what I mean, like making space for the community knowledge, the knowledge that's already there. And then um, again, as we listened to each other, um, it was healing, right? The space was healing. Um, and then I'll just give another one of these um, phrases that was really profound to me. So I was part of a group and we were um, you know, talking about doing circles and um, dealing with trauma. And this was during George Floyd. And I was just like, so upset. Mm -hmm. I, I came in the group and I was just talking. I was just going on and on like, oh man, this is just ridiculous. This is so hard to to witness and to be a part of. And then I like took up all the time that people were supposed to talk, right? And I was like, oh, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And then someone um, said, you know, no, no, don't apologize because as you heal, we heal. And to me, that was so- Don't apologize wow. because right. as you heal, we right. heal. And, and, and I'm telling you, I was in that space. I was just emotionally just tired of the racism yeah. and the death, right? In this country from police brutality and all the other stuff. And it was just coming out. And, um, and, and so that was just very freeing that, um, and it also speaks to, again, when we talk about community that, you know, we all have something that's going on, that something is happening that needs healing. And as we're in community, with each other and feel like it's safe to kind of talk about it, to express it. We don't have to hold it in. We don't have to be strong. We don't have to be all of these things that that's healing for us, but then also for um, other individuals as well. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, so I'm really on um, these spaces and then um, physical activity, right? Like it's just kind of um, the eight dimensions of wellness, the Samaritan, um, has a assessment that we teach our community health workers to use, right? So mm -hmm. economic, um, physical, body, mind, spirit, um, community, like all the different areas of healing and what are the modalities and multiple modalities, right? Because right. one may work for someone and not for others, or it may work for me on Tuesday, but it's not working for me on Wednesday. So what's mm -hmm. the, the holistic um, abundance of healing tools and mechanisms can we provide? Yeah. One of the things that always struck me about your research, Ruby, is that in addition, like we think about gun violence as being a very, or this, this is the way like I think people think about it. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but we think about it as very much uh, the people who are involved affecting the other people who are, in, who are involved. We don't think about it necessarily as impacting we obviously think about it as impacting the families of those involved, but we also, I think we don't think about it as much in terms of how it affects like a community very generally, like what it means to be in a place where you hear gunshots going off and how that changes you. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it means 
and how it changes people to be in a place where they're hearing um, semi-regularly or occasionally gunshots and they're aware of this potential threat that's around them. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I think it speaks to us as a country that we have the point of view that it just affect, affects the individual or the family, right? Like, cause then that's put yeah. on a very individual level and Absolutely. Not about on a societal level, what does it mean for us to be leading right in developing countries in terms of gun violence, mass shootings, all of that, right? Right. Um, but when I talked to the mother, I should say, Anne, when I talked to the mothers, um, that was part of um, the cost and the toll that it takes the stress to be hypervigilant, to be on guard, to try to protect your children. And sometimes you can't, right? And, and that was the most um, devastating part um, when for all of the vigilance and, um, you know, the energy that you're spending and that other moms don't necessarily have to spend, right, to protect your children and you can't. And they end up kind of getting um, killed and passing away. And so, um, you know, it, it's just devastating, the stress and how it plays out with the body aches, right, with the mm. things. And then... Um, you know, emotional. So that's interesting, like body yeah. aches, like physical aches. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because um, stress. So part of the whole study with the um, South Chicago project was to see how stress um, got under the skin to affect their health and wellness. And we, first of all, we were trying to see was gun violence an issue? Was that something that the community felt um, needed to be addressed? And so with the focus, focus group, we had children, men and women all in there. And overwhelmingly, they talked about the gun violence as being like an issue. And um, so we also said, you know, so we want to do a larger study and uh, we may want to kind of look at how stress gets under under the skin and kind of want some blood samples. You think people would be interested in doing that? And if so, like, what do we need to do or what do we need to say? And so um, then we kind of, you know, put things together and we came back and we did ask, and uh, most all of, the, like 99%, there's just one mother and daughter who was not comfortable giving their blood, but everyone um, else, they they did it. And again, this is part of the origins of my, one of the origins, there are many, of my um, passion for citizen science, because the mothers were interested in um them having the headaches, the back aches, the stomach mm, aches, right? Mm -hmm. um, some didn't associate it with the stress that they were under. Um, mm. Some were kind of questioning, not to say all of it was due to the stress, but um, that was that was really transformative just to see their level of interest. And we made sure when we did um, kind of write up the findings, and, and that's another thing with research that's frustrating for me, like it takes a long time. So, you know, it was several years before we did get a chance to go back and to report um, some of the findings. And I will say, um, we also then did another study where we had the mothers as um, citizen scientists. So, th so hmm. that's really a part of it. So all that to say that, yes, um, stress can um, get under the skin, right? The activation of the stress response um, creates a wear and tear on your body, right? Telomeres, the end, ends, um, 
of chromosomes can also um, reflect that increased aging from stress. So, yeah. yes. Ruby, it strikes me that you've had the opportunity to dis to research something that's so fascinating and is so important to people on so many levels and that maybe doesn't get as much airtime as it should in, in our society. And I know it seems like there's, you know, in the news, constant talk of, um, you know, shooting after shooting, especially mass shootings. I think what we're dealing with oftentimes in, in our local communities are very different from a quote unquote mass shooting where you have lots of retributive acts, for example, um, and you have kind of communities that have kind of been enmeshed in uh, these webs of, you know, conflicting relationships. And I don't feel like that gets as much airtime as it should. Um, and I wonder you know, for people who aren't as enmeshed in that world as you are, what are some of the, the big misconceptions do you think from your vantage point uh, people have about gun violence? Hmm. Well, I guess I'll answer that by talking a little bit about um, the documentary that we're working on called What's Left Behind. Yeah. And so the goal of the documentary is to show the humanity of those individuals who were um, murdered, right? To show that they were um, and in the documentary as it is now, it's mostly um, those who identify as males, right? Identified as males. Um, so it's um, about them as sons, as fathers, um, some of them husbands. Um, it's about what they um, like to do, what were their um, talents, right? Their genius. And then um, who did they leave behind? Who is left um, wrenching with gut-wrenching grief over their passing? One of the mothers um, talked about, like at the funeral, there were 500 individuals who showed up. And mm. she said, I didn't even know my son knew 500 people, right? Mm. And so um, to show that, you know, again, like I said, their humanity, right? They're, they aren't just numbers. They aren't just black or brown men, but they're people who were loved and um, dearly cared about. So that's um, one of them that I don't think gets enough attention. And then I would say too, which is frustrating for me as I do watch the news and even um, with the mass shootings that we don't talk um, much, in my opinion, about um, what can be done, um, right, right, kind of healing, what are the ways to heal from it, what are, again, like I said, um, identifying trauma, um, and then helping people to heal from it, like, in terms of the culture, in terms of what's covered in school, what's over the news, right? We talk about the events and what happened, but not how to avoid them. Um, I don't think we invest enough in prevention. So, mm. so for me, I think that that's also part of what people don't know um, and, and they should know, right? And that there are lots of people creating wellness spaces, right? Community centers. I'm going to just say Dr. Um, um, Betty Shabazz in Chicago has a um, Salam Community Wellness Center where she has like all different types of modalities, right? Um, Reiki and other things. And even I um, like acupuncture and all of this. And I was like, you know, Dr. Shabazz, you know, how how is the Black community responding? Because a lot of those modalities are outside of Black culture, right? And she said they're saying that they want um, more healing modalities offered instead of uh, just medicine, 
And I said, mm. yeah, that makes sense, right? So again, um, for people to understand that um, there are a host of ways that you can help with the grief, you can help with the PTSD um, counseling, right? If you need that. But again, the um, shame of this country is that people have to wait months and months. And sometimes if your insurance doesn't cover it, it's just not something that's available. And so again, how do we create infrastructure to support and to heal and to prevent, right? right. To prevent these things. So that's what I would like to see more time spent and for people to put their gifts and genius to creating and their resources, right? All of this takes money. Of course, of course. When you think about prevention, where does your mind go? Like where can we as a, a country and society start to reasonably like make progress in, in tackling this huge problem? Right. I think um, some of it, as I started um, before and talked about the third reconstruction, right? A equal mm -hmm. and just society, right? With um, access to higher education, access to um, living wage. And there's a new term some uh, someone was using, I can't remember, right? But jobs that allow you to support a family and do the things that you need to do, right? Um, University of Chicago did a study um, with young people who were given a chance for employment and saw reductions in gun violence, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, there are things that we um, have researched that shows can be helpful and um, we need to invest in that. So, so those big ones, right? Those big policy equality, addressing poverty, um, economic development, economic resources, access to higher education, even at U of I, right? The mm -hmm. flagship of the state, flagship university of the state. And we're still dealing with issues of diversity, which means that many of those students um, in many ways don't have access, right? I know we have the Illinois Promise, which is amazing for students who can't afford it. So that's a structural way that we're trying to um, break down the very ec um, economic barrier. But, right. but um, the schools where some of them are right, may not necessarily prepare them to come here, even if it was paid for. So that's still another barrier that we have to address around and, prevention. And Illinois Promise, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the University of Illinois' commitment to uh, make tuition and attendance at the university. I, I think it covers room and board, but your tuition is free for sure. If your parents collectively make less than, I think it's like $65,000 a year. Am I getting that right? Yeah, um, less than the medium of Illinois. And I think the last number I heard was 67,500, but don't quote either of us on it. You're right. But if it's under the median in, um, level, income right. level. Which is a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah, actually. yeah, I think it's amazing. I think it's, and, and like I said, I'm really addressing structural barriers. And so that's one that gets at the economic barrier. Um, right. And again, when you think about who is able to get into the University of Illinois, and then that's a that's another level of barriers you have to look at, right? In terms of the um, education that they receive, and even here in Champaign-Urbana, right, many of students of color are um, challenged with math. Right, I'm working on a math project, and so right. that's another structural issue. Right. It's it's important to think about the structural issues as well. I think because uh, they're so all-encompassing in terms of their effects. Like it's it's difficult to 
like pinpoint or really understand exactly what uh, is being changed when you overhaul entire uh, institutions and entire like structural systems that people are working within. Because when I was having this conversation with you, I, I thought this thought for some reason, and maybe it's the American in me, I thought, Ruby, if if someone gave you a million dollars, and it's just to, to go through the conversation about prevention and about what do you prioritize, which in my own work, you know, dealing with the community and, and working with the the citizen scientists as part of our uh, our NSF project on reducing gun violence, um, which I've been fortunate enough to work with here in, in Champaign-Urbana, I thought, you know, there are so many different organizations that are working on different things. And, and everyone kind of agrees that there's a quote unquote problem, like, um, but there's a lot more variability in what the proposed solutions are. Right. Everybody kind of has like a different idea of what they think it is. And maybe it's informed by a slightly different interpretation of the problem. Maybe it's simply because of their personal experiences. Um, but my original thought was, you know, Ruby, if you had a million dollars, what would you spend it on? And then, you know, the, the counter thought to that is that, well, it, there's not really anything that you can necessarily pinpoint. Like it's a part of a really large system that's making decisions and treating people in a certain way that's much more unwieldy than a simple price point that you can kind of address with some kind of fiscal change, right? It needs to kind of look at individuals in the entirety of the system that they're interacting in. Having said that, just for the sake of the discussion, if someone did give you a million dollars, and let's say focusing on uh, the community of Champaign-Urbana in particular, if someone gave you a million dollars and said, Ruby, we want you to use your genius to try to prevent, you know, gun violence as much as you can, where does your mind go? Yeah, it was going several places. <laughs> it's not an easy then, question. No, no, no. And then I'd love to hear kind of what you think too. And and I, I liked how you said, um, you know, different people with different ideas. And, and that is based on people's gifts and genius and their lived experience, right? Um, right. What they um focus on and also what they have the energy to do right people often like man you must have a lot of energy is this you do this and you do do that but I think part of it is um kind of based on what I feel is my purpose like what things I just feel compelled right sometimes I feel compelled to do some things that um so and and I, I don't know if I said this publicly or not but I think um that sometimes when you're compelled to do something it's at a it's at a different level, you know what I mean? Like you yeah. can almost do things at a different level. So I so I respect um all the other solutions that that people think about and that they're compelled and putting their um work into. I remember um, Phil Bowman, one of my advisors at Northwestern, um, when I was starting to work in Inglewood and work with legislators and he would talk about the people on the front line and say, Yeah, you know, they're doing God's work, right? And I was like, mm. wow. That's the just the way he said it with the deference and the respect because they're right. They're doing some heavy stuff that a lot of people can't do. And yeah. so um, but so taking it to me with my genius, my lived experience and all of that, I, I think probably what I'm doing now, um, one kind of thinking at a societal level um, change. Right. Literally <laughs> talking about a third reconstruction and Chicago Renaissance and trying to create sparks that would um, ignite that. And even though there's a voice in my head, like who you think you are, right? In terms of a third reconstruction, but then there's another voice that was like, look at the history of black, right? Look at the um, 
Black story, right? I am not, and I said this during a TED Talk, right? I'm not sitting before you enslaved, right? I am not sitting before you kind of, right? I'd say in Jim in the Jim Crow society, because in many ways it still is a Jim Crow society, but not the formal Jim Crow, right? And so there have been powerful ways that we have transformed this society. And when I say we, I mean all of us and, and our allies, right, of different races as well. And so, um, and, and I said, so what I'm doing now is, again, working with young people because I feel that, um, guess, uh, Ella Baker, right, like, um, what did she say? They have the courage to run against the storm and that, mm-hmm. right, they're, how can I say this, right, like, they will be, we won't be around, right? They'll be in a world that we won't be around. And how can we work together with them, give them unprecedented access, and then merge our forces, right? My force with all that I've done, whatever social capital I've accumulated, um, resources I can get, and to give it to them at a level where they would normally get it, right? Like normally, right, you got to be admitted here. You have to kind of take the class, right, and kind of get the access. But how can I um, do it in unprecedented ways? So that's one. And that's what we do with the Nobel Project to give young people unprecedented access to um, different fields, experiences. And then they're not starting, they're starting at a higher level. So that's one. And then two, I think, and again, based on my own personality and experiences and gift and genius is um, um, support the healers. And the, I guess what my um, advisor, Phil Bowman said, those who are doing God's work or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it, this sacred, I'll, I'll call it the sacred work, right, of um, healing, of fostering wellness um, across generations from the little babies in the neonatal intensive care unit. You know, we have a we have issues with infant mortality, maternal, black maternal mortality in this country. So, right, individuals working from the little babies all the way up to the seniors. Um, how can we create infrastructure so that they can um do it in a lot of ways? What comes naturally, right? People are already doing mm-hmm. community health work, people are already being peer advocates, people are already operating as counselors, and how do we give them? Um, more support. So I think that's what I would do. And again, first starting with structural change and then doing those two things that I talked about. How do you use a million dollars to make a structural change? If you just had to pick well, a couple things, just like. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say one. Um, so with the MacArthur, we're, um, we have a policy clinic, right? We have the young people mm. as citizen scientists, and they also um, are part of a policy clinic with legislators. So we can't lobby, right? We can't, Mm -hmm. um, we're nonpartisan. We're making clear that we stay clear that, but the young people learn about what's the policy process in this country, right? So this country is flawed in a lot of ways, but we do have a system where you can have an idea, you can see something is wrong, and then you can work with your legislators. You can bring other people together and address that issue hopefully for the betterment of society. So that's one, right? And again, this goes back to when I was around the policy table and often I was the only black female and um, the mothers whose children were failing to thrive, right? Who were coming in there small. In many ways, uh, 
you know, not thriving, small for their age, meaning they weren't getting getting the nutrition they needed to grow. Um, you know, so so part of it is to have them getting them that unprecedented exposure. And my hope too, and I and I tell them this is that maybe for some of them, um, they will become policymakers, right? They mm-hmm. will become again those in the future or or in the current. So one of the students sent back a picture that just stopped me in my tracks. And it's um, it was a picture of um, um, like maybe about six or seven tenths of unhoused individuals. And I saw that picture through her eyes, right? So again, when I, as an adult, asked the question, is this, this is an issue with society that we won't pay uh, or we won't give mothers enough money to feed their children. I saw through her picture um, the question about will we give people um, housing resources, right? Is housing a human right? And I argue, yes. Why in the amount of money we have in this country is anyone without housing? So that picture mm-hmm. really just um, stopped me. And then other pictures, right? They talked about um, losing students in their schools to gun violence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, death by suicide, a lot of things. And so that's another way that you change it. You um like they they have the gift, they have the genius, but you just amplify it. You amplify their voices. Okay, okay. so um, thanks for asking me what I would do with a million dollars, but I would love to hear um, what you would do with a million dollars. And you can tell us some um, maybe about your gift genius and your um, interactions with um, others in the community. Yeah, good question. So m- most of my familiarity with this subject matter um, comes from a grant uh, and a research project that I help lead here at the university through the National Science Foundation. Uh, It's actually a planning grant, which I've never um, had before, but now that I have one, I realize how important it is. The goal of a planning grant for folks who aren't necessarily familiar is to actually do a lot of the background research, have lots of different conversations with individuals, learn about a particular space, try to really, really understand a problem. Um, in a way that you hadn't previously, and to spend about a year of time doing that. Um, and from that planning grant, then you, you go on to sort of the, the real meat of the work itself. So it's kind of like a planning stage. The particular work we've been doing has been focused on um, has been focused on gun violence from the beginning. Um, and we thought, okay, well, let's try to help reduce gun violence in Champaign-Urbana. We don't know how to do that. We're not the experts in that. But we do know that there are lots of people who have been devoting a lot of their life to this and that are individuals in the community who have that deep, uh, that deep experience, that deep knowledge, that genius that we don't have. Mm -hmm. So let's talk with some of them. And so we had really in-depth conversations with individuals and community organizations that are part of the gun violence prevention and response ecosystem. So we talked with funders, we talked with people who do preventative services, we talked with people who do youth development, we talked with mm-hmm. people who are part of the, the, the trauma um, response and, and, and helping people who have been affected. We talked with um, folks from the NAACP, we talked with folks who are part of the, the legal side of things, so mom, mm-hmm. Moms Demand Action, for example. And from all of this, we, we said, okay, what can we do? And what is possible for us? And it it really kind of struck me. And I think a lot of us that, you know, there are some people who like everyone has a different, you know, 
thing that they work on. And I think a lot of these things are very important, but it really struck us that there are individuals who are a part of the, the kind of community that are doing so much, like they're so trusted, they're so relied upon, they're so integral to the the community. And when something happens or when there's a need for prevention or interruption, those individuals, those key organizations or just individuals, they act as sort of like super nodes. They're very highly connected and they can have a lot of leverage over what happens in the network more broadly. And so what we did is we just kind of found the individuals who we felt like were the most influential, the most impactful. And we said, what can we do for you? What can we build for you to give you more leverage? Because we could try to build something or create something or study something and then try to get you know community members on board with it. But that seems like a very backwards process, right? Mm-hmm. What you would want to do is look at individuals who are already doing this kind of work, who are already deeply embedded in the communities that they're mm-hmm. trying to serve and work with, and use that to your, you know, uh, advantage. It's way better to do that than to do something off on your own and just hope that it gets taken up by the individuals it's um, meant to work with. So in working and having all these conversations with the community, um, we started working with a reverend in Champaign-Urbana who runs a midnight basketball program. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is an individual who seems, you know, just unquestionable in terms of his connection to and his commitment to the community. He also happens to, I think, more than any other individual that we've been able to identify, um, know and is relied upon by the most um, potential shooters uh, in the community. So when people who are close to the violence are, you know, they need help or they feel like, you know, they know something is going on, more than anyone, he seems like the individual who can facilitate connections, who can calm people down and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we first started the project, we were focused on gun violence reduction. And as the project evolved, we realized that it was really an issue for us of youth development, that you know we could we could do lots of different things. And we thought about doing lots of things. You know, we thought about um, you know, building something that allowed people to get more connected to resources that are available in the community. The idea being that we have lots of really great, you know, resources here. There's lots of need among the community. And what we could do is provide a sort of matching service where we're making sure that there's a really, um, a really high rate of utilization of those services. Um, there were some kind of technological problems with with that particular direction that we didn't feel like were were super viable. Like just logistically, it's a very difficult thing to do. You know, we have this patchwork system of different individuals who are working on different things and getting all of those, you know, organizations with their data. You know, you might be able to provide, for example, information about uh, a homeless shelter that's available. Maybe because individuals have been affected, they need to stay somewhere. They don't have anyone to go help them out. So you need to connect them to some place that could take them in. But if they don't have availability, that's problematic. If you don't know when that facility is staffed, mm-hmm. that's problematic because then you're providing people what looks like on paper a resource, but then they go to follow up and right. they can't get a hold of anybody. And it just produces frustration and headache and distrust in that thing that you're building for them. So that was one example of something we thought about doing and decided it wasn't probably particularly viable for us. And I'm not saying that it's not like a good thing that should be worked on. I just thought, you know, in terms of bang for the buck, we just couldn't see it being the most helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, What we found, uh, though, is that, you know, there are a couple of those individuals who are doing that amazing work and they're doing it off of like shoestring budgets, like with very little money. Right. And in terms of 
you know, you hear about like really large grants that come into the university for, you know, X million number of dollars. And you're like, wow, if you just had, if you just had a fraction of that, right. To send to some of these individuals in the community who are doing this work. I mean, the lift that you could have would be, would be tremendous. And so what we're doing is, uh, and one of the reasons I love your community engaged approach is because I've seen firsthand how powerful it is Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. when you engage people from the community, you really kind of get a response and you get a solution that you could have never got on your own. And so we kind of just had all these different conversations. We looked at everything that people were saying and we said, you know, this makes the most sense in terms of our capacity. And what we decided to do was work with some of those key, you know, individuals in the community who have a lot of leverage in the the prevention and response networks and build them, uh, build them an app that helps them communicate and connect with the individuals that they try to work with and, and help. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can think of it like a communication app. Um, we don't know like a lot of the features that are going to go into the app. We have uh, some basic ideas about allowing mentors to connect to mentees, right. allowing mentors to more easily and more readily create positive narratives and, and mm-hmm. share positive experiences among their vast networks that they have a very difficult time maintaining connectivity to because they just don't have resources and infrastructure. And some of these individuals who are super connected say, I can't give out my phone number to everybody. Mm -hmm. And I can't possibly keep up with everybody like that. And we're not the first to create a communication tool, right? There's Slack, there's WhatsApp, you know, there's GroupMe, there's, I mean, you know, Twitch, even for, for online gaming, right? There are lots of different communication tools that exist. I think that what makes some of them really effective, though, is that they have features that are very contextualized for the communities they're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we said, well, we have a very particular community here. We have individuals who are doing this kind of community mentorship. A lot of them aren't really, quote unquote, mentors by definition. Like they don't exist within an NGO that is built for mentorship, right? The reverend who we're working with really closely runs a midnight basketball program that's attended by dozens, hundreds of kids, but he's not a mentor, quote unquote, on paper, but he does a lot of that work. And he's doing, I think, to a point we had earlier in the conversation, he's doing God's work Mm -hmm. in terms Mm -hmm. of like how important of a resource Mm -hmm. he is in terms of helping um, some of the boys that he works with. And so we thought, well, let's give him a tool that allows him to do what he needs and what the kids want. And let's build what they say they want. And let's make it an iterative process where they're constantly providing feedback. They're constantly providing ideas. And so we've, you know, we've brought them in for workshops. We've taken down their ideas. We started designing some of it. Uh, we're working really closely to, to pitch some of those ideas back to get more feedback. Um, but they've come up with some really cool ideas um, about um, the need to make it really easy to check in so that they can keep up with those really large Mm -hmm. networks um, to make it easier to share positive stories. Um, Also, we've heard from the mentees, from the boys, that it can be really difficult to talk about certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things you mentioned earlier about judgment actually really stuck out to me because one of the things that we've heard from a lot of the boys that we're talking to is that sometimes they, they know they've done something wrong and they know that it would be good to talk to somebody about something that's happened, Yeah, but they don't want to because they're afraid of judgment. Right. Right. And And you know what I think for that to, to have um, community health workers or peer advocates to have them trained, right. So that, so they're part of, or to have the information, right. So they're part of the group. They're in those spaces where we could necessarily be. 
which which is also what I'm trying to um, do once we think about scaling it up, right? Like how how do you have the help at their fingertips and mm -hmm. that they also know what to do and how to help themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so I didn't want to interrupt. Go ahead. So no, that's that's an awesome point. And they they don't they're not quite sure how to help or go. Well, well they're not really. They don't reach out. Yeah. And they yeah, don't reach out because, well, I could tell my yes. mentor about this. I could tell my volunteer, you yep. know, about this. Rev, uh, the Reverend has a bunch of volunteers who work with him, obviously, to help out with the, the various different programs that he has. And some of the kids will say, yeah, I'm not going to talk about this, though, because I know I'm just going to get, I'm just going to get judged for it. Or right. I'm just going to, like, they're not going to hear resources, me. Right. Like they have a, um, um, Reverend Comer, I'm assuming that's who you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. May, you know, they may feel he sees them in a great light. And I know he'll, he would probably continue but they don't know that. Right. And they, right. they fear losing that respect or relationship. Mm -hmm. And yep. so, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. And it's, it's also difficult because I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the folks who we're working with um, who have been so, you know, so underserved um, they really, I think they naturally would struggle more. It's not easy talking about your feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think for boys in particular, it's also something that, you know, our, our society tells them not to do. I think that it's gotten probably better if I, if I had to guess over the last 10, 20 years or so, but I still think generally speaking, like a lot of them, you know, especially from these, um, you know, really difficult backgrounds are, are kind of told, you know, suck it up. Don't be a wuss, you know, all, all those things. And it, it's looked down upon right. when individuals, you know, share their feelings. So we're creating features that allow them to, to more kind of easily and more normally share. Um, I think about games mm -hmm. when I think about this say, a lot. Right. Like other ways that they can share versus the kind of sitting down and talking to someone, right? The, the writing, creating a dance about it, other things. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. I guess what I, what I think about is, you know, um, games are interesting from just like a human interaction perspective, because they facilitate behaviors that would be weird or unusual otherwise. Mm -hmm. But once we kind of all agree that we're just playing a game, and this is what the rules of the game sort of allow us to do. Yeah, yeah. Now this is a normal behavior. And you may think about like, um, like truth or dare is kind of like one of the, the classic, you know, game examples that allow people to open up and divulge and behave in new ways that they wouldn't normally do. Because if anybody were to do some of the things that you, you know, might challenge someone to do in a, a typical, you know, high school, middle school game of truth or dare, it would look weird or unusual. Right. Um, but once you kind of all say, nope, we're just playing a game, it kind of takes a lot of the, the mm -hmm. judgment and the burden off of mm -hmm. the individual and it frees them to be, you know, and to say and to do things they wouldn't do otherwise. Yeah. And so I think about the power of games in the context of, let's just create features that normalize and remove the judgment from right. some of these typical things. And then you don't have to worry about, you know, I am going to be judged. I don't have, I don't, this is going to, people are going to think negatively on me. Um, and it facilitates, we think anyway, it'll help facilitate some of these conversations, um, especially the difficult conversations. Yeah. And yeah. I think that there's a lot of opportunity to um, have kind of, you know, what does it mean to be a man? Mm -hmm. um, how do you deal with violence? How do you deal when someone, you know, disrespects yeah. you? Yeah. These are like really difficult things to talk about. And I think that if there's a, a network in place to help some of these boys navigate some of these 
these uh, questions and, and issues they're having, then it can really be a preventative tool so that when the time comes and they're in these situations, they kind of have the social, behavioral, and kind of the emotional skill set to, to better deal with it, or that they can reach out to individuals um, who, who have that, that skill set and that knowledge set. And yeah. it's, it just struck me, you know, one of the other things you mentioned earlier uh, about comic books um, and about like the importance of, of like creating these new ways for people to express their, their genius and develop into these new people kind of struck me because when we were talking previously with uh, the Reverend, and this, I guess, is a broader question of what would I do with that million dollars? It also struck me that there's a lot of power um, something that really surprised me, and this is the, mm-hmm. the value of doing community-engaged research, is you learn things that you could have never learned mm-hmm. you know, otherwise, mm-hmm. is that when the reverend is potentially um, mediating a, a, like a violent conflict, mm-hmm. or he knows that there's beef brewing between two people, mm-hmm. um, he may try to take them to a different physical geographic mm-hmm. location. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was really surprising to me. The reference is also really interested in in using exploring like VR as a way of doing that, like in a way that can take them to new places. Yeah. Um, and the the transformation, like the transformational power that you get when you take people into different places, it almost like allows them to leave behind everything. Right. right. Like, yes. Yeah. One of my um, colleagues, Bertha Purnell, talked about um, she worked with the nature group and I can't remember, but they took the young people out into um, forest preserves and kind of away from the city and the context. And that helps with some of the hypervigilance, right? Because you still got to look around, see where you at, you know, what's going on when you're in the city. But there, there can be a whole nother level of safety. And then other parts of their emotions and mind and other things can be on board, right? They're not spending it trying to see, am I safe and who do I need to watch out for? So, uh, right. and that's what we want to do too, more experiences where they can get away for for um the mothers who've lost children to gun violence i mean everybody like i said even for me with the retreat that i was just on it was just in new mexico it was just beautiful right you need space we all need space and some of us have more access to that than others right right and and i should say with the nobel project the national science foundation also funded that when you were talking about nsf with the um, kind of groups, bringing the groups together. So yeah. yeah. One of the other things that it feels like there's a huge opportunity for, and I don't know, I don't know what to do with this, mm-hmm. but the Reverend talks about just how, and I know, cause he gets really excited mm-hmm. when there's any opportunity for us. And there's been several, and we've taken every one that we have mm-hmm. to bring the kids who are citizen scientists who we're working with mm-hmm. to the university. Yes. It's just such a, it's such a game I changer. I know, I know, I know. And, and it's, um, we, we mm, <laughs> yes, I'll just say yes. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So one of the things that we're really excited about is to have, um, the, there's a, there's a workshop that's done at uh, one of the university's design centers, the Siebel Center for Design. Um, that's done with the School of Engineering. It's about people designing technology for mm-hmm. other people and about the basics of kind of user experience research and, and interface design and usability design. 
and we're working to bring uh, it. Then they offer it like a workshop that's about a week long and mm-hmm. you can stay on the university uh, mm-hmm. for some of that. And the university provides, I think there are counselors to kind of help them curate and understand the experience. So mm-hmm. after like the workshops during the day, they'll kind of do yeah. like a couple of group activities at night to help them kind of understand what they were going through and to help them kind of um, break down like what they liked and what they learned. And mm-hmm. it's a really kind of codify it into a cool learning experience for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have uh, that experience is offered as well. So, I mean, in part based on the Reverend's excitement for just how impactful visits to the community or visits to the campus can be for some of these uh, kids, you know, it's just been really exciting to like connect them to that so that they yeah. can come onto campus and experience that for, for the week and have that really immersive, you know, experience, which those are always so and not for, it's not because of, you know, the, the kids who are working with or because they're citizen scientists, it's just, that's how humans are. You know, you have to have an immersive, you know, experience where you're around other people and it's, it's happening for, you know, it, it's not like a thing that just occurs over the span of a couple hours where you're really kind of ingesting what's happening. I think of it kind of like is almost the difference between learning a language where you're, studying from a textbook versus learning a language where you're really like immersed in the place where that language is fluently spoken, right? It just kind of activates something very different inside of you. Yeah. You know, we've talked a little bit about tangentially in this conversation, citizen science work. And it strikes me that there's a unique opportunity here to hear from you directly because you use it so much in your own work. And I think it's actually one of the things that makes the work that you do uh, so impactful um, is that you're breaking down the barrier that exists between people who are the quote unquote kind of knowledge creators um, for society and academia and the individuals who are having those lived experiences. And that makes for generally a more robust knowledge generating system, I think. Um, But can you kind of tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, what it is that you know, the value you see in citizen science and and maybe, you know, provide an example or two about unique things that maybe you could have never uncovered, you know, unless you had really tapped those individuals who are going through those lived experiences. I'm a huge fan of citizen science research, obviously. Yeah. Um, I think we need to do more of it. So I'd love to hear what you, what yeah. you think. I, I mean, I think it's all of it, right? Like as um, faculty, as researchers, when we go out and we take the stories of individuals, and and we write it up and put it in a journal, right? And it's considered new science, but that's coming from the individuals, right? Like it, it's not, yeah. right? So to me, it's it's just been um, fascinating to watch this, and especially as a person of color, right? To to kind of watch these patterns of it. Um, so, and again, citizen science is um, individuals who it's not their profession, right? That they're working with people who who it is their profession. Um, and again, I talk about both sides um, have, or both groups, I should say, um, have knowledge and resources, right? So um, even if I wasn't involved, they would still have the knowledge. They're still doing, um, I think um, Patricia Hill Collins talk about, talks about everyday science, or I can't remember what I used to teach my class. So they're, they're already making patterns out of what they see, right? They're already trying to um, figure out if I need something to happen here, what do I need to do here? So for me, it's just really, um, like I said, really acknowledging it, first of all, in ways that um, it may not be acknowledged and to give space for, it, especially with young people, right? Because then that's a whole nother level of it, right? So not 
just in the community, but young people who um, often aren't asked what they think, aren't, often aren't told they're scholars. So that's why when we do the Nobel project, we call them Nobel scholars, right? When we train them as community health workers before they get their certificates, we call them um, our wellness scholars. And, and that's how I want them to see themselves, right? Because they're collecting information, they're processing information, they're using that information in a systemic way. And so um, that, yeah, that's definitely my passion. So the next, the next way I'm trying to take my passion to the next level, and maybe this is also what I would do with a million dollars is to um, have them publish their um, knowledge, right? Mm. I, I talk about um, how I would love for them to have books and um, um, pictures and other things that talk about depression, anxiety, um, mm. grief, um, you know, quantum physics, like all of chemistry. We have someone who's working with um, Marty Burke, some um, Saif Williams. He was a Nobel scholar. Now he's going to work with Marty in his um, molecule maker lab and create new new science and knowledge. So how do we capture it and have these artifacts? And so one that the youth and and the community and the university can see um, their scholarship or just their gift and genius, and um, two that it helps other young people. So so that's my kind of next thing and. One way we're doing that is with comic books. We're going to start mm. uh, creating comic books that talk about anxiety. One of our community health workers, her brother has um, anxiety. And so to, um, you know, not necessarily naming him, but just kind of talking about anxiety in general. And then here are some tools that could help. And again, putting that into the general society. So you asked before, how would I do the systemic change? I think part of it, um, we need a, a wealth transfer in this mm. country, like a big one. And then I think we also need a knowledge transfer. And so getting a lot of what we know around neuroscience, um, psychology, how the body, mind, spirit connects and getting that information into the community and for the community to give us some of the in, um, information, because that's how they're living in a lot of times, in a lot of ways, right? That's the knowledge that has been transferred from generation to generation. I tell people as a black female, I'm still here because of that knowledge, right? I'm still mm. able to be in these spaces and do what I'm doing because of the healing practices, because of the wisdom, because of the connection. And so we also need to know that when we talk about doing um, extensive healing. I like what you, um, oh, there's so many good things there. I really like what you say too about uh, the comic books. And it might seem like a small thing to some, but there is something that feels very powerful about providing people an opportunity to totally change the way they see themselves, mm -hmm. to totally, you know, see something new about the world, um, to a, a way to, you know, interact with it, to engage with it, to make an identity in it, um, to feel good in it. Um, and just even small opportunities like that to make a make a comic book. Um, I imagine other things too, like to, to make an album, uh, to learn an yeah. instrument, to play with other people, right. um, the different ways that people can express their genius. Right. Um, but, but Peter, can I, can I take it? Like when you, so that, yeah. that could be the small part, but then yeah. the larger part is the comic book can grow into a schoolhouse rock, right? So, mm. uh, right. When I grew up, I learned a lot of stuff from schoolhouse rock. That was part of the culture. I can still sing some of the songs. So that's one way that we talk about doing healing. And then mm. another way, 
is um, when Wakanda, Black Panther came out, right? That was a cultural phenomenon, right? We were like, wow, look at the beauty, look at the awesomeness, look at the technology that's there. And so movies and all those ways to um, saturate our culture with other narratives, right? Counter narrative as critical race theory talks about. Right. It's got to be especially difficult. And I know in conversations with you previously, Ruby, you've been kind of exhausted. I am exhausted. I'm tired. <laughs> I think that that's part of the nature of the the really difficult work that you do, though. Um, and I, I like that we've been kind of talking towards the end here in our conversation about prevention. And I think it's important, especially when you're dealing with uh, work like this, that can be so tiring and so tr- stressful and probably in a lot of ways so traumatic to yourself. Um, what's something that you're optimistic about, about the the gun violence problem or our country's t- ability to to deal with it in general? Um, are there things that make you optimistic as someone who lives that that work struggle? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the young people, right? Like they are um, beautifully brilliant. Um, they are living the situations and they are creating their own solutions. And um, I think, and that's also again why, um, for me, it's important to support them and to. Um, as they're um, running against the wind to make the wind less forceful, right? To make it easier for them to do what they need to do. So that's definitely um, one source of um, kind of inspiration. And I think especially like what I'm seeing in Chicago here too, but I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot in Chicago is that people and organizations are creating Um, community centers, wellness hubs, like all kinds of things to address um, these changes. So I think that's also hopeful. Um, On a policy level, um, I think that's tougher, but but I will say, right, I'm working with the Illinois Black Caucus on legislative Black Caucus who passed, right, a whole package of black anti-black racism legislation devoted to um, um, right kind of the wellness of those who have been incarcerated, just a whole range of things. So I think on a policy level, things like that are very hopeful. And then the other thing I do want to say is that um, Forward Promise, which is part of the Mariah group, they I just came, I was telling you how I was um, having trouble traveling back. And, um, you know, Brandy Barnes was like, oh, Ruby, you should apply for this. It, it looks, and I was like, I don't have time. I'm so tired. So, you know, but I applied and I didn't know that rest and, and retreats were a part of it. And it was, and I think that's really um, important. Like, and I really appreciate their vision to give those who um, do spend so much time in this area, a place to come and rest. And I will say, Again, we are each other's medicine. That was a, a an amazing group of individuals. And we talked about um, the things that um, are challenging for us, the things that are hopeful. And that really was just extraordinary. It was um, just amazing. So I think those things give me hope. And then the last thing I'll say is um, I, I am trying to change my schedule. So for those who out there listening, send me good thoughts. We're trying to decrease the amount of things that I'm doing. 
Um, but I also started a um, with my team, um, Joy Happy Hope campaign, right? Because like I said before, I was starting to feel like, you know, can you make a difference? Like how much, like I could work my whole life 24 hours a day and like what, <laughs> what would I see for it? So um, the campaign is, is for me, but it's also for others to, to, like you said, to highlight the things that are happening. You're not alone. You're not the only one fighting and you do have to take some rest. So that's, um, is what I'm finding hopeful on a, on a very personal level. Great. Awesome. Well, we're about out of time, um, Ruby. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, and I'll be sure to post some of the links to some of the references and resources that you've uh, brought up in our conversation today so people can follow along as well. Yes. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. All righty. Ruby Mendenhall, thank you.